This episode is brought to you by the all-new TaylorMade Stealth 2 driver. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, sure, it's distance, but there's actually two things. Distance and forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. Jack Nicholas sent his approach putt some five feet short. He studies the putt carefully, and as he's about to stroke, his hat blows off. But steel nerve Jack calmly strokes the ball home to Carter Sizzling 68 for a 72-hole total of 269, 11 strokes under par. The World Amateur Team title and the trophy goes to America, and young Jack Nicklaus looks like one of the greatest golfers that America or any nation has ever developed. There's an interesting little piece of golf history that if you're, let's say, under 50 you may be only vaguely aware of, or you may not know it at all. And it's about one of the greatest players ever, Jack Nicklaus. When he was a young man, strange as it's going to sound, he fully intended to remain an amateur, just like his hero, Bobby Jones. This was in the early 60s, which, in my head at least, doesn't seem that long ago. In other words, it seems too late on the historical timeline for someone with that kind of ability to consider just not playing for money ever. And you look at something like soccer, where by the 1890s, the, quote, ideal of amateurism was already considered quaint. Obviously, by the 60s, every other big American sport that you can think of was decades into its professional era. So if you weren't around back then, the mind today almost rebels against this concept. Jack Nicklaus not going pro? I mean, imagine in the late 90s that happening with Tiger Woods. Tiger's going to stay an amateur. It's just inconceivable in some way. And it's worth mentioning, too, this wasn't a situation where, okay, the minute Nicholas won a couple events, he said, obviously, I'm going to do this for a living. No, he was very successful. He won two U.S. amateurs, finished second at the U.S. Open, then fourth, got a top 10 at the Masters. By the end of 1961, this guy is 21 years old and starting to be considered one of the best golfers on the planet. And while all that's happening, he's studying insurance as an undergrad at Ohio State. He gets married. He has his first kid. Jack Nicholas is going to be a working stiff. There are a few things happening here, one of which is that Nicholas has always been a unique guy, never afraid to fly his own flag, and if anyone's going to pull this stunt, it's probably him. But this isn't just a case of a lone wolf doing something you know, kind of extreme. First off, there really is a kind of romance around being an amateur. Bobby Jones was still very much alive then. His legend was fresh. Not the way it is today where, okay, his greatest exploits are almost 100 years old and it's inevitably obscure just a little by the fog of time. Jones is a direct influence then. There's also the simple fact that, okay, there's not anywhere near as much money in the game as there would be even just a few years later. Maybe in 1961, it doesn't seem quite as crazy to pit a career in something like insurance against whatever you think you can make in golf. And we have to mention too that golf has always been, for better and worse, a little behind the times. The tides of history are a bit slow to wash up on its shores. So, if you blur your eyes a little bit, you can almost see how something like this is possible. You can almost see how Nicholas has this romantic idea that he's very serious about. Obviously, we know how that story ends. He comes to his senses in late 1961 after meeting Mark McCormack. McCormack is Arnold Palmer's agent, the founder of IMG 
and he seems essentially to have shaken Nicholas by the lapels and said, here's how much money you can make, and that was that. And I mention all of this not just because it's fascinating in its own right, but because it's such an interesting contrast to the Jack Nicholas that we are going to meet in 1983. And that Jack Nicholas is not some fresh-faced idealist. In fact, there's no romance in him. He is, by that point, 22 years later, a hard-boiled capitalist who is out to protect and grow his money. And he will be aggressive about taking on anyone who stands in his way. In 1983, the institution he believes is standing in his way is the PGA Tour. The Tour is at this stage of its existence in the process of transforming itself from basically an organizational and scheduling body. You know, we, we do the logistics for the players, we take a small salary, we enforce the rules, that kind of thing, into the corporate juggernaut that we know today. You'll note the parallel with Nicholas. There's a sort of theoretical purity an idea of what the original purpose should be that will change with time and change quite dramatically. Could say the same thing for the entire sport. But as far as the tour goes, Nicholas doesn't like the transformation. It has nothing to do anymore, though, with any kind of notion of what golf should be in its purest form or anything remotely like that. He's upset because he thinks they're taking his money. The tour is developing courses. Sawgrass is new. They're marketing, they're getting sponsors, TV deals, they're starting to exert some real control and becoming a bona fide big business. And Nicholas is a businessman himself with a lot of the same interests, and he thinks the tour is competing against him. He doesn't like it. And if the tour is the institution to blame, the man Nicholas has in his crosshairs is someone who used to be his childhood friend, his Walker Cup teammate, the guy who taught him how to chart courses. The man who, in 1983, is now the second commissioner of the PGA Tour, Dean Beeman. Their conflict comes to a head that year. It's an outright rebellion, the only thing to call it, and there is a few ways to look at this story. One way, which I think has its legitimacy, is that if you're someone who thinks the PGA Tour is too big for its britches, you know, if you're Phil Mickelson, maybe, this was when it started happening. And this was probably the last chance to stop that growth, to limit their mandate before they basically took complete control of American professional golf. The other way to look at it, which is equally legitimate, is that this was a moment where if guys like Nicholas and the big names he enlisted to his cause, Arnold Palmer, Tom Watson, the list is long, if they're successful, you could be looking at a huge schism in the sport, something like, dare we say, Live Golf, 40 years before Live Golf. But at its heart, this is a conflict between two men. And as far as Jack Nicholas is concerned, Dean Beeman is no longer his friend. He is a business adversary at best. That's the kind way to put it. He's going to go for his head. And you get the sense that he thinks he's going to get it. Hard not to believe him, too. I mean, there's not much that Jack Nicholas has failed at in life, is there? But there's something about Dean Beeman, too. When you read about this guy... Well, let's just say he's going to stand his ground. And if you pick a fight with him, you better bring your dancing shoes. You better know what you're doing. There's an awful lot at stake. There's got to be a winner here. Too much ambition on both sides. Too much momentum. Frankly, too much money to be made. This has got to come to blows. In 1983, the modern world has come for professional golf. There is no rewinding that clock. There's a lot up for grabs. And what has been a cold war for a couple years now is about to turn very, very hot. 
the all-new TaylorMade Stealth 2 Carbonwood has arrived. Completely redesigned with more carbon and even more forgiveness. All of which translates to lots of long, straight drives and finding fairways even when you miss the sweet spot. When TaylorMade set out to improve on the original Stealth Carbonwood, they weaved in even more carbon to deliver distance and plenty of forgiveness. We call it Fargiveness. Catch that drive a little off the toe? Not a problem for the Stealth 2. Just leave it to all that carbon to straighten things out. Hit your next drive off the heel? Just stand back, admire your drive, and ask yourself, how the heel did I just carry that water hazard? That's Fargiveness, baby, and it's all thanks to carbon. What an element. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit TaylorMadeGolf.com. This is Local Knowledge. I'm Shane Ryan, and it is Players' Championship Week, so we thought, hey, what about a good PGA Tour story? In this podcast, I am going to rely heavily, and heavily might be an understatement, on the wonderful research done by Adam Shupak in his book, Dean Beeman, Golf's Driving Force, which is one of those books where I knew it existed, and I'm friends with Adam, and I went for a long time without reading it because I didn't know if I'd be that interested. When I finally did read it, It was a head-smacking moment of, you know, why on earth did I wait this long? It is a tremendous book. The storytelling is sublime. You'll learn why the tour is how it is today, Uh, but it's full of drama. And and this story of the 83 Rebellion is just one chapter. Literally, it's the first chapter he writes. There's a whole book of this stuff, so I can't recommend it highly enough. And I am indebted to Adam Schubach here. It's all I can do, not just to read the chapter. I'm not going to do that, but I won't pretend I wasn't tempted. The first thing you have to know, and it's going to end up defining this fight in a lot of ways, is that Dean Beeman was on the road to making the PGA Tour huge. You you got to remember back then, um, the, the PGA Tour wasn't the PGA Tour. Uh, we didn't have a name, we didn't have a brand, and the the, the brand for golf uh, for uh, fifty years until I uh, started. Um, was the players, the, the, the most important players at the time were what the tour was, not the tour itself. We're not going to go into the whole story of how the PGA Tour came to be in its modern incarnation, but as a brief detour into some older history, the big breakaway from the PGA of America, the previous governing body, happens in 1969 after a pretty intense two-year fight. There was major discontent on the side of the touring players, not only did they feel they weren't making enough money, and the PGA was doing things like signing new TV contracts without consulting them, putting the money in the general fund that goes to club pros and everywhere else, and not into the touring fund. And there are also some crazy rules in place. For example, a rookie couldn't accept prize money for the six months of his career, stuff that you kind of just shake your head at now. The purses were growing, but to the extent that they were, the players knew it was because of them, and they didn't think they were making enough. They wanted their fair share. And while this is all happening, the bigwigs at the PGA of America have the audacity to basically call them entitled for even asking. So while the details of that breakaway are pretty interesting, it would make its own good podcast, there's not much drama in terms of the outcome because the situation was just untenable. The PGA of America was almost comically old-fashioned. They weren't going to change. The two parties do manage in the nick of time to call a sort of truce where it's not a complete break-off, but essentially they become two different organizations and the PGA Tour brings in an old hand from the USGA, a man named Joe Dye, to be its first commissioner. Dye runs it until 1974, then Dean Beeman takes over. 
And by 1979, things aren't going so hot. The Tours Policy Board met that year to discuss what was essentially a lot of bad news. Ratings were down for the fourth straight year. Junior participation is down. Pretty much everyone they find in the galleries is an active golfer, which means they're not really making inroads elsewhere in the sports world. And basically everywhere you look, it's not just stagnant. It's getting worse. So what does the tour do? Not to become glib, but what they do is they become what they are today. They invest in marketing. They become aggressive in their pursuit of sponsors. They start building courses to promote stadium golf. And we're not going to go too deep into the weeds of everything they're doing, but long story short, it starts to work. It starts to really work. Ratings go up. Sawgrass is making them money. The course they built prize money and charity money are going up. Just as an example, there were three tournaments with purses of $400,000. These are total purses, mind you, not first place money. That's in 1980. By 1983, there are 21 of those events. For the first time, the tours got a couple million dollar events. And to give you a broader sense of where this is going, the total purse in 1974, the annual purse for all tournaments when Beeman took over was 7.4 million. In 79, when they're kind of in a panic about how things are going, it had increased to 11.6 million. By 1982, it's going to be up to 14 million. And a year later, in 1983, it's already $16 million. Look at revenues. In 1974, tour revenues were $3.9 million, which is very low. You know, Think of modern standards. It's not even comparable. But when Beeman leaves in 93, that number is $229 million. And this is all kicking into gear after 1980. You get the idea. So then you might be asking, well, what's the problem? This guy, Dean Beeman, he's making everybody richer. Why would the players have any issue? Well, here's the thing. This rebellion that we're about to learn about was spearheaded by the richest players, the ones who had interests beyond the game that would conflict with the tour. And there's not a ton of those people, but Jack Nicholas is one. Arnold Palmer is definitely one. And it's the two of them who met in Bay Hill, March 1983. And that meeting was what would set things in motion here. They spoke in Palmer's office. There are some really good details in Chupac's book about how Nicholas was kind of stunned at how ramshackle Palmer's office was, and Palmer was offended when he found out, and he spent a lot of money revamping everything. That's neither here nor there, but I wanted to mention it. But when they met, Nicholas laid out his major issues, and they weren't too complicated. Again, the tour had started their marketing arm. It was called PGA PGA Tour Properties, Inc. at the time. They had deals with a credit card company, an airline, a cruise line already. And Nicholas didn't like that, but he also didn't like, for instance, PGA Tour logo shirts because he thought it was a zero-sum game. And if you're buying that logo shirt or you're buying a hat, you're not buying his Golden Bear gear. He and Palmer also ran their own tournaments at Bay Hill Memorial, of course. And he didn't like that the tour negotiated and packaged their own TV rights because he wanted to sell his own. And a big thing for them both was TV specials, being able to compete in them getting the tour to kind of chill out on their non-compete clauses during the off-season. And last, and this was something their agents hammered home, the tour was getting into the club design and construction business, and they thought that was going to hurt them because they were into that too. So Palmer's with him, 100% it seems like, at least at first. But again, I want to emphasize this point that these are not the concerns of your rank-and-file golfer. They don't design their own courses. They don't run their own tournaments. Most of them don't have their own clothing line, okay? So these are rich people problems to some extent. And the big challenge they're going to have, Palmer and Nicholas, is convincing everyone else to support them. 
but they are very influential. If the implication is that they might break off and do their own thing, that has financial pitfalls in place for the regular golfers. It's going to lower their purses. So this is not easily dismissed because it's one or two guys. And you know that phrase that there are no poor people in America, just temporarily embarrassed millionaires? I think it's attributed to Steinbeck, if I'm, if I'm right. Well, we also have to deal with that here. These guys look up to them. What if I'm like them? I don't want the tour you know, controlling me, telling me what I can do and can't do. So Beeman gets word about this. He called it a total revolution. But from what anyone can tell, he doesn't learn about it for a little while, maybe not until May 17th. A couple months later, there's a policy board meeting. The tour policy board is a 10-person body, which consists of four players and a lot of executives. And one of the players, Jim Colbert, asked them all a pointed question. And the question is pretty simple. How are we doing? It's a very broad question. And the chairman of the board, a man named E.M. DeWint, who is also the CEO of the Eaton Corporation of Cleveland. And he's going to serve in this story as, you know, to put this in mafia terms, He's maybe Dean Beeman's consigliere here, his right-hand man. He's happy to talk about this. He's happy to answer Colbert's question. And the answer is, as we covered before, things are looking up, especially since the rough days of the late 70s. In fact, he says, it's never been better. And as he finishes, Colbert says, that's what I thought, but we're fixing to get hammered. You see, Colbert had some inside information. He had overheard... Jack Nicholas talking to about 20 other pros that year at the Byron Nelson. It was only a few weeks before the meeting. And that was kind of out of character for Nicholas. He's not a guy to stick around and hang out and talk to people. But the message to those pros was that Dean Beeman was running things like a, quote, feudal lord. That's how Shupak put it in his book. And the players in that group, anyway, from what Colbert could tell, they seemed to agree with him. And nobody sitting in that boardroom knew about the secret meeting between Nicholas and Palmer at Bay Hill. They didn't know that a palace coup was you know, for all for all intents and purposes, already underway. But that didn't matter because Beeman knew and everybody there knew that if Jack Nicholas was basically preaching against you, it's bad news because everything Nicholas does, he does with a purpose. Very unlikely that this would just be idle chatter. Something was amiss. Something was happening. A cold wind was blowing and it was going to be Beeman's head on the chopping block. And that warning from Colbert was important. Shupak compared it to Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, you know, the Redcoats are coming. And it gave them time to prepare because they didn't know when the big blow was going to fall, but now they knew it was coming. And among other things, they decided to produce an annual report, which interestingly, the PGA Tour seemingly had not done before. And they knew that was one way they'd be able to show with numbers exactly how much progress they'd made. Now, Nicholas is interesting in just how far he'd gone into the business of golf. He fired Mark McCormack and IMG in 1970. He felt he was playing second fiddle to Arnold Palmer, hired a man named Chuck Perry to run his affairs. And now he was basically endorsing or starting his own line with everything under the sun, including car dealerships, travel ranches, real estate, a lot of things that had nothing to do with golf. And Perry played a significant role in sort of sounding the alarm for Nicholas about the PGA Tour. And Tom Watson's agent, Chuck Rubin, was doing the same thing. Beeman actually met with Tom Watson in Kansas City. They had a long talk, but Watson had his hesitations too. And in fact, much later in 1992, he had a quote in Golf Digest that basically summed up his position. I'm going to read it because I think it's fundamentally a mission statement for him, for Nicholas, and for everybody who led this rebellion. He said, quote, I think the basic problem is that the tour is competing with its own players. It's marketing the tour for the players, but 
at the disadvantage of the successful players who could go out and market their own image. End quote. Probably will not surprise you to know that the word socialism was bandied about here and there. Nicholas, in a later book, said that Beeman was trying to run a socialist state, creating a tour in his own image. And again, it underlines the point that what's good for most PGA Tour golfers may not be the best for the absolute creme de la creme, or at least they think it might not be the best. And obviously, we've seen a reflection of that in today's fight between the Tour and Live Golf and some of the guys who have gone, like Mickelson, but also in changes that have been made for those who remain to sweeten the pot a little bit. So this stuff, as you see, has been going on for decades. Now, I'm going to read one more quote, this one from Dean Beeman, because it represents the opposite side of the spectrum. He said, quote, Nicholas looked at business the same way as he did a golf competition. For every dollar one side made, the other side had to suffer a loss. That there could be more than one winner in the same contest was as foreign to professional golfers as conceding a five-foot putt. End quote. So you can see his argument is that if we get bigger, you get bigger. A high tide raises all ships, and what's good for the tour is good for the public image, which means it's good for you. Two very different philosophical approaches there, right? One of them is zero-sum game. One of them, hey, we're all going to benefit here. So this confluence of events is going to reach its fever pitch that spring and summer. And one little subplot worth noting is that Mark McCormack, Palmer's agent, the IMG guy, he was there for the Bay Hill meeting, but he's curiously absent from a lot of the drama that comes next, which isn't really typical of him. He's usually in the mix, but he was in Europe at the French Open and just basically not on the scene when this all starts in earnest. And when you look at how it eventually turned out, there's a, some people, maybe a lot of people, who think his absence was pretty crucial. He's a very smart guy. He's a strategist. And not having him around is a definite loss when you're going toe-to-toe -to -toe with guys like Dean Beeman. Hello, listeners. My name's Luke Curdenine. I'm Golf Digest's play editor, and I've got an exciting update for you. Next week, Golf Digest is launching a new podcast hosted by me called Golf IQ. We discuss all things game improvement on the Golf IQ pod. And if you're a golf nerd, you're going to love it. Our goal is simple, to make nerdy nuggets of information easy to understand to help us all become smarter, better golfers. So search Golf IQ and subscribe wherever you get your pods. We're looking forward to seeing you. Okay, so now we're at the Memorial, late May. The tour knows something's going on. They don't know exactly what. During the first round, it rains. So Nicholas uses that opportunity, the rain delay, to bring together some of the best players in the world and their agents for a closed-door meeting. It's all about Dean Beeman's leadership. And what comes out of this meeting is the first real shot of the war. Basically, the memorial is Fort Sumter in this scenario, and the first shot comes in the form of a letter. It's signed by Nicholas, Palmer, Tom Watson, Johnny Miller, Lee Trevino, Raymond Floyd, Lanny Watkins, Gary Player. Player wasn't at the meeting. They had to apologize later for not inviting him, but he does sign. And the letter is made out not to Beeman, but to E.M. DeWin, chairman of the board, the consigliere. And... We're not going to get into everything it said. It was two pages long, and it laid out everything we've already talked about. And in addition, it included this line, quote, Nor do we intend to watch our commissioner become the czar of golf. End quote. And it has some, you know, lip service to positivity. You know, we'll help you rechart the tour's course if you're agreeable. But it closes with a threat. Quote, If not, 
We will have no other choice but to take whatever action is required to protect our individual and collective rights. End quote. Boom. This time it would not take two months for Beeman and company to hear about it. In fact, the letter was dictated to Beeman that day. It would have felt harsh under normal circumstances, but it was a particularly bitter pill because three former policy board members who had worked directly with Beeman, Floyd, Hale Irwin, and Tom Kite, were among the signees. His feeling initially was one of betrayal. There was a moment where he just considered hanging it all up. Hey, you've lost the confidence of the players. What are you doing here? Why not just step down? But in the end, that was never going to happen. Probably he was a fighter, not a quitter. And he had a little hope because of two phrases in the letter that caught his eye. One of them said that he had, quote, exceeded his mandate. And another said that his actions were, quote, unauthorized. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But it's important now to talk about why Beeman was doing what he was doing. Fundamentally, he thought that it would de-democratize golf if these players got what they wanted. They might have more money in the short term, but it would turn golf back into an extremely niche sport that couldn't come near capturing a huge audience. Shupak, you know, referenced bowling, rodeo riding, stuff like that. You know, and, and much less they couldn't land any corporate sponsors. They couldn't become a part of the culture to such a degree that the PGA Tour becomes a lifestyle brand as much as anything else, as we see today. That could never happen if there was a schism. And he had worked very hard in the last couple of years to start the process, and he could see exactly how it could collapse if things went wrong here. And not only that, but on a personal level, these guys that worked for Beeman, they were worried about losing their jobs, and it didn't seem like an idle fear at that time. So there was some panic. There was some stress. Beeman lost weight. People around him said he looked shattered, but he rallied to the cause nonetheless. And he also thought that some of what he was doing was catching on with the average players, things like the retirement plan, obviously the bigger purses. He thought maybe the players who weren't the 1% or 2% richest might support him, but did that matter? Did that matter when the top players were overwhelmingly the largest draw and had overwhelmingly the most influence? By the way, this is an aside, but it is hard to tell the story and not find yourself speculating about what might have happened Back then, if something like the Saudi Public Investment Fund were interested in a rival golf league, if you take the circumstances of the 2020s, put them back there in the 80s, because it seems when you're reading it that there might even be more bitterness to the PGA Tour back then than there is today, but there was no clear sense of what they were going to do if they left. Whatever it was, they knew they were going to have to build it, create it from scratch. There isn't that sort of deus ex machina just waiting to fund your rebellion, your breakaway. And it is an interesting counterfactual to think, hmm, how could this have gone if there was a live golf waiting in the shadows? Where would golf be today? Anyway, back to reality. Beeman had the instinct that attacking Nicholas on the merits of his arguments, calling them selfish or whatever the case, or even really battling in public overtly was probably not the way to go. But he also remembered the original tour charter, the one from 1969 from the split with the PGA of America, he found it in his old files. He had done a ton of research before becoming commissioner, so he knew just where to look. And this charter that he pulled out is remarkable in that it directly goes against the claims that he was exceeding his mandate or acting in a way that was unauthorized because it expressly, in its bylaws, says the tour can run tournaments, it can build and own golf courses, it can sell licensed products. And if that seems a little comical and how on the nose it is, try this one out. 
Jack Nicholas was a board member at the time. He not only signed this piece of paper, but he helped design it. He helped write it. And Beeman understood also it wasn't the right moment to confront Nicholas directly. A lot of hot blood. So he went through Jim Colbert, the player on the advisory board. He gave him the corporate charter, schooled him in just what it said and what it meant, and basically dispatched him to show Nicholas this whole thing. And he took the same approach. He gave the same advice to Colbert that he had given himself. He said, don't bother arguing the merits. It's not worth your time. Just show him what he signed and let his mind do the rest. Let him fill in the blanks. Colbert was a willing bulldog, uh, to choose a term that Shupak uses. And as luck would have it, he actually got invited onto Nicholas's jet after they met for a different meeting in Ponte Vedra Beach. Colbert was headed up to D.C. for the Kemper Open. Nicholas was going for some meetings, so they sat together. Once they reached cruising altitude and it was too late to kick him off the plane, he pulls out the charter. And according to Colbert, Nicholas, as he reads this, is basically speechless. He is shocked at what he's seeing. And all he can muster, eventually, is, wait a minute. Okay, it says they have these far-reaching powers. Fair enough. Who gave it to them? And that lets Colbert drop the coup de grace. He points to Nicholas's name on the charter, to his signature, and says, you did. At that point, Nicholas is despondent. Colbert senses it. He goes on the offensive. He says, you know, you called the tour's integrity into question. You don't have a leg to stand on. And if you make this a fight, they're going to go after you. And Colbert's a very funny character because if you believe him, and I don't see any reason not to here, he was basically calling Nicholas to the carpet and he was pressing his advantage. And in the meantime, he was going around the player's locker room telling everyone that would listen that Nicholas Palmer and Watson were going to start a breakaway tour and only invite about 30 players, which wasn't true. Unless maybe by implication, but it wasn't something that they were planning to do. It was something I guess in the future they might have done, but nobody had said they were going to do it. So he was bluffing. He was playing a little bit dirty. Uh, if you go back to the mafia metaphor, if we said DeWin is the consigliere, Colbert is the soldier, and he's about as good a soldier as you could find. He's very, very comfortable mixing it up. It's clear Jack Nicholas does not intimidate him. Mark Kizier, I'm hoping, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It might be Kazire, like Patton Kazire, but it's spelled different. Mark Kizier, anyway, he was the, on the tour board at the time. He gives Jim Colbert credit for saving Dean Beeman's job. So the plane lands. Nicholas is furious. He talks to Chuck Perry, his agent, has Colbert show him the document. He calls up Chuck Rubin, Watson's agent, who some people thought was the main pot stirrer. He rips him a new one. And for the first time, you get the sense that Nicholas is on the back foot. Meanwhile, Beeman's other deputies are at the Kemper opening, figuring out exactly who's with them, who's against them, who's neutral, who can be influenced. Colbert is lobbying with the players, telling a few fibs in the meantime. And along with Larry Nelson and Peter Jacobson, they're out in the range, they're in the locker rooms, they are spreading the message that if these guys succeed, they're going to hurt you. They're going to hurt your wallets. And now the gaps are showing. Now there's weakness in the line, and in comes corporate America, like the cavalry almost. You find a hole in the line, and boom, here they come charging through it. They know they've got a good thing in Dean Beeman and the tour, and they start coming out in droves. It starts with Frank Chikernian, the CBS Sports executive producer. He was not afraid to tell the Rebels they were making a major blunder. The sponsors came out for Beeman. And then DeWint files his reply, his official reply to the letter that Nicholas and the players had sent. And he uses very polite language. He says, let's work together. Let's forget the ultimatums. Let's forget the confrontations. But the letter makes it very clear, and it's from the entire board, that there is no coup 
inside the palace. The board is behind Beeman squarely. Then the tour starts going to the press. They go to the AP. Nothing major, mostly just responding to certain things, but maybe it's a little taste of what might be on the horizon if these rebels continue to press forward with their craziness. And suddenly, the energy of this whole thing, of this whole coup, is starting to look a little weaker, a little more suspect. In fact, it's starting to look just a little bit like they're in over their heads and that they're getting outmaneuvered on every front. At this point, things start to happen very quickly. On June 7th, Beeman gets a copy of the tour's first annual report, which is now complete, into the hands of Arnold Palmer. And the timing is impeccable because Palmer, Nicholas, Beeman, DeWint, they are two days away from meeting in person in Connecticut at the home of Lou Lapham, a former tour policy board chairman. And that meeting is going to come the same day as a meeting later that night of all the players who are going to be playing that week in Connecticut. And that's where the fireworks are supposed to go down. So Palmer has this annual report two days before, you know, Armageddon comes. So June 9 comes. Palmer flies into Connecticut. Nicholas flies in. They meet on the tarmac at the airport. They talk. They ride out together. They talk more in the car. Palmer is already saying, look, the answers we wanted are in this report, which Nicholas hasn't read yet. The other passengers in the car are reporting that, you know, they're arguing. The fingers were flying. And you have to imagine for Nicholas, seeing the air go out of Palmer, a guy that you, you don't just want, but a guy that basically you need if this is going to work, seeing him sort of lose the fire had to be incredibly dispiriting. So they reach Lapham's house, Beeman to winter there. And at that point, if this looks like the scene of a major battle, you know, we're doing the Civil War metaphor here. If this looks like Gettysburg, well, that wasn't what happened. This was Appomattox. This was the scene of a surrender. Nicholas saw the one ally he needed, the major one. Arnold Palmer was out, no longer had the stomach for it. And he himself shortly after, lost the taste for battle. What he wanted now wasn't more of a fight, but he wanted a graceful exit. He just didn't want to be humiliated. So DeWint gives him the annual report. He sees the letter that Palmer had already seen, laying out neat bullet points, everything the tour had done right, all the money they're making, et cetera, et cetera, point by point, meticulously notated. And it's interesting to note that Nicholas was chain-smoking throughout this meeting. According to Shupak, that wasn't something he did very much at that time anymore, so you read into it that maybe this is a stressful time for him. He's pretty worried or whatever. And when it's over, Palmer says, we didn't need to send that letter. That's pretty significant for him to say that. He makes a joke about how Nicholas got him into this whole mess. At this point, you get a sense of a couple things. First of all, that Palmer may have been in this sort of lightly. He found it easy to extract himself to be the nice guy. Nicholas was the more intense of the two. And this whole thing reads like, it's not that Nicholas is naive. He's very successful outside of the golf course. He has his finger in a lot of pies. He legitimately is a businessman and a good one. But here he's running up against something he doesn't quite get. He doesn't quite get the size and scope of it. And that thing he doesn't get is the fact of the PGA Tour entering a new age. And this new age, yeah, he may understand it's getting bigger. Beeman is increasing his power. The money is flowing in. But he doesn't understand that he's already too late. The writing is on the wall here. There is a ton of money to be made. Beeman is very good at his job in a very specific way, and he's connected and he's got allies that are very powerful, and all of them have his back. Now, in this story, you hear a lot about how things seem to hinge on these personal interactions. We talked before about how some people think 
Jim Colbert saved Dean Beeman's job when he met with Nicholas on the airplane. There are these secret meetings and backdoor plotting, and it all seems like maybe it can turn on a word or a moment or a conversation. But then there's another view that you have to consider, which is that this was never going to go any differently. The systems were operating at full speed ahead, and even Nicholas and Palmer weren't going to stand in its way, not successfully, because there's an inevitability here. I don't know if that's true, somewhat hypothetical, but at the very least, you have to consider, let's call it the metaphor of the giant ocean liner. Once it gets going, it's really hard to slow down, much less turn it all the way around. And at this point, the PGA Tour was an ocean liner, a new one, but an ocean liner nonetheless. Look at today. Even with the greatest sovereign wealth fund on planet Earth, poaching some of the biggest names from the PGA Tour, some of the best players in the sport, they've got an unlimited war chest. Obviously, we're talking about Live Golf. It's going to be damn hard to kill the PGA Tour. And so far, they seem not just to be surviving, but playing the game pretty well, it seems like. Nicholas and Palmer didn't have that kind of money. They didn't really have a plan. They were just discontent, basically. And despite all their influence and all their fame, how are they ever going to stop Beeman? Hard to map out how that would look practically. Hard to write that counterfactual. And so in that sense, it looks like less of a romantic story to say, okay, this capitalist juggernaut was always going to steamroll these guys. Not as fun, maybe, but you have to wonder if it's true. In any case, Palmer was probably reluctant to agree to go along in the first place. At this point, he was eager to get out. Nicholas clearly felt himself boxed in. And at that point, Dean Beeman did about the smartest thing he could do, which is that he didn't press his advantage. He didn't, he didn't dig the knife in deeper. He didn't go for the kill. He struck a conciliatory tone. I'm sorry, we didn't communicate well. We didn't do annual reports soon enough. We're going to apologize and make sure everyone knows this is partly on us. Just to make sure that if Nicholas is feeling cornered or humiliated or whatever, you don't do anything that's going to make him lash out. You give him the easy escape. He saves face. Everybody's happy. So that weekend, the tour is in nearby New York, as we said, for the Hanover-Westchester Classic, which became the Buick Classic eventually, later became the Barclays and Northern Trust. Now it's technically the FedEx St. Jude Classic in Memphis, a playoff event. Anyway, the special players meeting was set for that Thursday, June 9. And that night, essentially the entire field was packed into the ballroom at the Westchester Country Club. Standing room only, you're talking about 150 people or more. And none of them knew what had just happened at this private meeting. So this was a big deal. This was going to be fireworks. This was going to be Ragnarok, the Clash of the Gods. They actually put bedsheets over the window so people couldn't see in. They wouldn't let an AP reporter in the room. And the meeting starts with DeWitt reading a statement from Nicholas and Palmer. And here's how that begins. It's worth reading the, the first sentence here. Quote, Two weeks ago, we privately met and communicated to the board some concerns and questions about the current policies and future directions of the PGA Tour. It has never been our intent, however, to create any public controversy about the tour or its current leadership, both of which we support, end quote. Now that's rich, isn't it? Because that's exactly what they were doing. Literally the only item on the agenda at their meeting at the memorial was, do you support Dean Beeman? They had gone to the press. They had taken steps publicly to make it known how they felt. And that opening sentence, though, shows how thoroughly they were outplayed. And it was enough to take the air completely out of the room. Nobody knew what was going on. If you want a drama, if you expect a drama, well, guess what? You're not going to get it. The drama happened earlier at Lou Lapham's house. Nothing to see here. Everybody go home. The statement goes on. Quote, 
Our main purpose to get more information and to involve more leading players in helping to shape the future of the tour has been accomplished. The board has been very responsive. End quote. It's a nice way to say, you know, oh, we won. <laughs> yeah, we did it. We, uh, this, is, this is what we wanted all along. So there you go. So then Nicholas stands up and he speaks for 10 minutes. He's got the annual report in his hand. He's saying how well the tour is done. Says anybody can see for themselves. Just look at the numbers. This is a pretty rapid sea change, isn't it? You have to tip your cap to Beeman here. This is a kind of judo move. Not only does he win the fight, but he ends up getting his opponent to sing his praises publicly in front of all the other players. Basically solidifying his position. That is taking a negative and using the opportunity to basically make yourself unstoppable. At the end of the speech, Nicholas says, we think it's time to formally withdraw our, quote, previous communication, which is the letter. Somebody there raises his hand and says, what's the letter? What was in the letter? Nicholas says, it wouldn't do anyone any good to read it. And he grins, according to Shupak, like he's kind of in pain. The meeting lasted for four hours, but Nicholas left after he was done speaking. Thomas Boswell of the Washington Post caught him on the way out, and Nicholas said, well, Dean Beeman keeps a lot of things to himself, but as he gets into his car, he's got one more quote for Boswell. I'm going to stick to playing golf for a while. And that pretty much says it all. What does this mean historically? Well, the next year, Beeman had his contract renewed for five more years. As we said, he ended up serving until the early 90s when Tim Fincham takes over. And Fincham lasted until a couple years ago when Jay Monahan took the job. This is a very stable position. Since 1974, only four men have sat in that seat. The PGA Tour has grown and grown and grown, and even now, in what is probably the greatest trial of its existence, maybe even greater than 1983, it's thriving. And I think what's important about 83 is that it was the last chance for anyone to redefine what the tour was and how it would operate. The last chance to keep it from consolidating its control and power and becoming the huge money-making apparatus that we know today. And if anybody was going to do that, it had to be Nicholas and Palmer and Tom Watson. And they got together and they got the other big names and still they couldn't get it done. You could debate a long time about if they even got close. It's more dramatic to say they came within inches of getting Beeman fired or redefining the tour. They were on the palace doorstep ready to break in with their pitchforks. I'm not so sure. I think they were too late. I think what Beeman had done for the rank and file players, how he had ingratiated himself with corporate America the sponsors, to CBS, to everybody, gave him an unbelievable amount of untested power. And when the test came, he had a lot more muscle than Nicholas or anyone else expected. But whether you think this was a near thing, that they almost got the tour, they almost reversed history, or whether you think it was fait accompli, what you can't argue is that after this, as Shupak put it, there is a bright green light for Dean Beeman for the PGA Tour, and it says, Go! The rebellion started almost exactly 40 years ago this week. It has echoes in everything we see today. And if you want to know why the tour is the way it is and what weapons it has at its disposal, how it chooses to deploy them, you look back to this skirmish and see how the patterns played out. This wasn't the start of the tour's modern era, of the juggernaut era, but it was the moment when it all became obvious. If you hadn't read the tea leaves since 1980, look what happened when they were challenged by Nicholas, by Palmer. That's when they showed what they were made of. That's when Dean Beeman showed where this was all going. 
And if you weren't sure exactly what kind of power the tour had before, well, now you know. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our music for today's episode is called Waltz for Zachariah, and it's by Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts, and check out Golf Digest's other weekly podcast, The Loop. We also have a new podcast on golf instruction called Golf IQ, coming soon. You can sign up for that as well. Thank you very much for listening. The all-new TaylorMade Stealth 2 Carbonwood has arrived. Completely redesigned with more carbon and even more forgiveness. All of which translates to lots of long, straight drives and finding fairways even when you miss the sweet spot. When TaylorMade set out to improve on the original Stealth Carbonwood, they weaved in even more carbon to deliver distance and plenty of forgiveness. We call it Fargiveness. Catch that drive a little off the toe? Not a problem for the Stealth 2. Just leave it to all that carbon to straighten things out. Hit your next drive off the heel? Just stand back, admire your drive, and ask yourself, how the heel did I just carry that water hazard? That's forgiveness, baby! And it's all thanks to carbon. What an element. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit TaylorMadeGolf.com.